Did you hear that story about dolphins returning to the canals of Venice? You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. Nature recovery stories have gone viral during COVID. While many of these stories have been debunked, they inspired us here at Terra Informa to take a closer look at some local species and special places. My name is Daniel Fedorshevsky. And I'm Elizabeth Dowdell. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we start our episode, we would like to acknowledge that we are situated on Treaty 6 and the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples that live and gather here. We'll have more to say about treaty later in the episode. This week, we're talking about conservation and biodiversity in Alberta, reflecting on some places and species across the province that are meaningful to us. We wouldn't be Terra Informa if we didn't give you an annual conservation episode and pair that episode with a report from a respected conservation organization. <clears throat> Published on June 4th, 2020, Hours to Save is a report by Nature Serve Canada and the Nature Conservancy. This report includes one of the first comprehensive lists of endemic plant, animal, and fungi species within Canada. What's an endemic species, you ask? An endemic species is one that can only be found in a certain geographical area, whether that's a certain ecological region or a country. The list in the Hours to Save report includes 308 different species, subspecies, and varieties that, so far, have only been documented in Canada. Of these 308 different endemic organisms, over 80% are invertebrates, like insects or vascular plants. The rest of this list includes mammals, birds, different kinds of mosses, lichens, fungi, and fish. The Hours to Save website also provides maps of the different ecoregions within Canada. From the chipper Pacific Stellar's Jay in Haida Gwaii to the delicate Yukon Draba wildflower. This report profiles the numerous species that exist within small pockets of the country and emphasizes the importance of conserving these plants, animals, and invertebrates. We asked the team to dig a little deeper into recent headlines and personal experiences with some of the special natural places in the province that have been impacted by human intervention in both good and bad ways. In this episode, we'll hear from Tara Informer, Kurt Blandy, about the mighty Sturgeon River and recent conservation efforts. Tara Informer Andy Silva will share a memory of the biodiverse milk region and recent threat to its water levels. And I'll share a story about river otters, inspired by a headline from February that left me wanting to know more about this playful species that I didn't even know existed in Alberta. Before we get to these stories, we need to take a minute and talk about conservation. 
The municipalities and ecoregions in this episode are indigenous homelands and treaty lands, from the central parkland of Sturgeon County and Treaty 6, to the southern grasslands of the Milk River and Treaty 7, up to the boreal forest and Treaty 8. One of the goals at Terra Informa is to recognize the intersectional nature of environmental issues. This means recognizing how race and class intersect with the environment. And in the case of this story, who gets access to natural spaces and who gets heard when advocating for conservation? As Canadians, we tend to pride ourselves on our love and protection of nature. We're wild about iconic species like the beaver, caribou, and loon that adorn our currency. Yet, when it comes to things like parks and protecting natural areas, we have some questionable practices. Places like Banff and Jasper National Parks are the ancestral homelands of the Stony Nakoda, Nitsitapi, Tanaha, Sutina, Sequapemk, Asinuwuchi, Winnewak, and other First Nations, and the Kelly Lake Metis. These have been important or sacred sites for many others too. Establishing these parks meant forcing First Nations and Métis off their territorial lands in order to privatize and capitalize on the natural beauty of the region, creating a legacy of displacement and erasure. Alberta parks share a similar colonial history. The colonial roots of these so-called conservation efforts are not just a historic problem. If you read the news, you can find multiple instances of conservation officers harassing Indigenous peoples practicing their hunting, fishing, and trapping rights, including actions like issuing illegal fishing tickets and enlisting the RCMP to raid homes for moose meat. Environmentalists and conservation scientists have also been known to ignore Indigenous stewardship and rights when it comes to practices like range planning and hunting quotas Attitudes towards conservation are changing though. The Sierra Club, a prominent conservation group in the United States, made headlines when it published the article, Pulling Down Our Monuments, on July 22nd, 2020. The article takes ownership of the organization's white supremacist history and its role in perpetuating the outdoors as a place for the white middle class. The organization details some concrete actions and some yet to be fulfilled promises to do better and treat conservation and environmental issues as the intersectional matters that they are. While Terra Informa is making efforts to center the voices of Indigenous peoples, Black people, and other people of color and their experiences with nature and the environment, it's important to start by learning about some issues for ourselves. You can read about Indigenous peoples and conservation movements in Canada, like the Guardians program and the Indigenous Circle of Experts at the show notes on our website. Or dig deeper into decolonizing conservation with the linked reading list by Sarah Cannon. To learn more about the First Nations and Métis who live on or in proximity to the conservation stories we're telling today, we looked at maps, read news and other articles, and did background research. And you can do the same. Start by searching for what Indigenous community lives closest to the place you care about. Today, 
We're sharing stories about our joy and enthusiasm for the conservation and protection of nature in Alberta. These stories make it clear that protection hasn't always been the goal in our relationship with nature or each other. Let's hear from Kurt about a story that inspired him to care a little more about a local landscape. The Sturgeon River, or the Mighty Sturgeon as my grandfather used to call it, is anything but mighty. He used to call it that as a joke. When I grew up in St. Albert, the Mighty Sturgeon was little more than a dirty creek with more shopping carts than apparent wildlife. With bike paths running parallel to the river for mostly the whole length that ran through St. Albert, myself and many other residents would utilize, you'd think that there'd be more of an effort of keeping the river clean and clear and under control. Sadly, this was not the case. Throughout my childhood, I was lucky that my parents and grandparents taught me to have respect for the river and the creatures that inhabit the area. I'd use the river to go canoeing every once in a while, through scouts or school field trips, to learn about the history of the river and the city of St. Albert. However, throughout school, I was only ever taught the colonial history of the area. The curriculum barely touched on the history of residential schooling within St. Albert and Sturgeon County, or the history of the indigenous people who occupied the area before settlers arrived, such as the Plains Cree Nation, who inhabited the area for thousands of years before the arrival of Father Albert Lacombe, the city's namesake. I find this to be extremely colonial and typical of my experience in St. Albert. I am a settler and I had to do this research for myself after moving to Edmonton. In my opinion, these things need to be included in both the Protestant, now called the Public, and Catholic St. Albert School Board's curriculums. The following are excerpts from a document written by Derek Richmond, a professional engineer, chartered scientist, and a chartered water and environmental manager for BLESS the Big Lake Environmental Support Society. Sturgeon River Basin, once abundant with wildlife and plentiful with plants, has undergone more transformation in the last 100 years than in all of its time since the formation after the last ice age 8,000 years ago. Long before the arrival of Father Lacombe in 1861, the Sturgeon River was known by the Cree as Niku Opom, Red Willow River. It was a fertile hunting and fishing ground and its shores and those of Big Lake supported the Tamarack Trail, an important transportation route for the indigenous peoples to move within and between major watersheds, the North Saskatchewan and the Athabasca. Development brought rapid change to the sturgeon, competing water demands for agriculture, irrigation for golf courses and sod farms, oil and gas development, and gravel extraction operations mean that the river is often reduced to little more than a muddy trickle barely adequate for the dwindling fish population. More than 600 approved water withdrawals take place in the basin. Less than half of this water is returned to the river. The river has endured further injury from storm outfalls that have deposited sediment barriers to fish migration. Shopping carts are an eyesore amongst the migrating waterfowl and busy beavers that occupy the river. Where once grew riparian flowers, now dense vegetation from invading species and aquatic weeds fed by fertilizer runoff now dominate. Few old growth trees remain in the basin and those that do are unlikely to survive as prairie forest islands. Steps are being taken to conserve land in its natural condition and to restrict developments that could impede the river's health. Recent studies in the Sturgeon River Basin 
and the recent designation of Big Lake as a Special Place 2000, which recognizes its importance as waterfowl staging area, have helped draw attention to the plight of the river. However, this is just the start of a long and hard battle to save what we have remaining of a once rich and healthy watershed. Communities are awakening to the urgency of the river's demise. These initiatives will not come cheaply or easily. They will have to compete against developments and economics. Awareness and understanding of the fragility of the river and its importance to communities as a source of beauty, health, and recreation is vital. Perhaps our future generations will have the privilege to stand near the old stone teepee rings, feel the spirits of generations gone, and take in the beauty of the Sturgeon River. Fish species found in the lake and the river include northern pike, goldeye, white sucker, walleye, and sticklebacks. The lands surrounding Big Lake provide important habitat for moose, white-tailed deer, beaver, muskrat, mink, skunk, coyote, red fox, porcupine, snowshoe hare, and red squirrel. More than 235 bird species have been recorded at Big Lake. Some 180 are recorded annually. At-risk species that use the lake include trumpeter swans, sproggy pipits, and peregrine falcons. Alberta Fish and Wildlife considers Big Lake to be one of the 20 most important habitat areas in Alberta. The Sturgeon River goes right along with that. You're listening to Terra Informa, and that was team reporter Kurt Blandy sharing a story about the mighty Sturgeon River. While it has lost some of its former glory, efforts are underway to restore this important waterway. Speaking of important waterways, let's hear from Andy Silva as he shares a memory about the Milk River. My introduction to the Milk River Basin happened in the summer of 2016. I was in my second year of graduate school, and back then I was a bright-eyed teaching assistant that had the pleasure of taking a class of international students to a field trip at Riding on Stone Provincial Park. I remember how breathtaking the view was, the look of amazement in the students' faces, and I also remember our gracious guide telling us about the significance of the region to the First Nations people that call it home. My experience made me reflect on the importance of the Milk River to the region, to the natural environment, the animals, and the people who live there. A lot more things make the river special to Alberta. It is the only river in the province that drains south into the Gulf of Mexico and it provides much needed water and shelter to the wildlife in the region. It is a home to several species of rare and endangered fish, amphibians, birds, and plants. The region is also of important spiritual significance to Blackfoot peoples. Important petroglyphs and pictographs in the Milk River Ridge area tell the story of the indigenous people and serve as an important cornerstone for Alberta's history and culture. In the summer of 2020, however, the river is threatened. Due to a collapse in the structure across the border in Montana, Milk River is at risk of drying up. According to a CBC article, water is transferred 
into the Milk River through a 47-kilometer canal system with two gravity siphons to transport the water. Over the May-long weekend, on the Montana side, one of the drop structures suffered a major collapse and compromised the entire canal system. This failure is preventing water transfer from the St. Mary's Basin into the river and the consequence was a severe decrease in water flow. Last month, the total flow of the river was about 3 cubic meters per second. That is a substantial reduction from the 18 cubic meters per second expected for this time of the year. Tim Romano, the executive director of the Milk River Watershed Council, explains that we are close to the tipping point. Romano explains that the possibility of the river completely drying out is a very possible one. The St. Mary's Diversion water makes up to 80% of the Milk River flow. And with the recent failure in one of the points of transportation structure, there will be a significant impact to the local ecosystem. Fixing the failure involves cooperation between Canadian and American officials. But the current weather in the region is posing a challenge to the crew and it's delaying the repairs. There is also the challenge of involving all stakeholders and communicating an effective strategy that will address several needs, as multiple stakeholders wish to use the full diversion capacity, the longevity of the river is in danger. While the river has dried up before, um, after a particularly dry summer in 2001, the consequences of this drought can already be felt. Milk River is one of the top 10 spots for paddling in Canada, but the incredibly low water flow is turning away people that would usually make the drive down from Calgary and Edmonton to enjoy the river. Beyond tourism, the crisis is affecting the local community in substantial ways. The river served as a natural fencing and drinking water supply to the people in the area. Repairs to the damaged structure in Montana are estimated to be around 175 million US dollars and are being paid for by American officials. The full repairs are expected to be completed by September of this year. This is Tara Informa and you just heard Andy Silva sharing how the Milk River became a special place for him and what it means to water security and biodiversity in Southern Alberta. Next up, I hope you share in my delight learning about the river otter and its return to the Calgary region in Alberta. What you just heard was the delightful sound of two otters squeaking playfully together in an unnamed wildlife park. If you read those headlines about dolphins from the start of the show, then I hope your social media feed also includes some content about otters. Maybe you've seen the video of a four-month-old otter taking its first bath 
or watch the BBC One Earth from Space Otter Fisherman episode about giant river otters and the cinder bonds. Or maybe you follow Otter City, a page dedicated to the thriving urban population of otters in Singapore. Or maybe that's just me. I have never seen an otter in real life. This is not a story about creating attachment to a special place through experiencing it, but one about other ways we can be inspired to learn more about and make efforts to conserve local species. It might not be that recent, but back in February of 2020, a story was making the rounds in Alberta. On CBC, the headline ran, Otters spotted in Southern Alberta city for first time in about a century. Global News reported, wildlife experts excited about otter sightings in Calgary. Just wonderful. I had followed stories about otters before. In 2018, a river otter famously terrorized the Dr. Sun Yat-san classical Chinese garden in Vancouver, evading capture and eating 11 of the garden's prized koi fish, including the 50-year-old Madonna. It's a riveting story, but we'll save that for another time. What these new headlines from Southern Alberta made me realize was that there are otters in Alberta? I've lived my whole life in central Alberta, mostly in Edmonton. And yet, I had never thought about, imagined, or fact-checked that river otters live in the province. This is only slightly less embarrassing than admitting I learned caribou live in Alberta in the last six years. Yet, in a country as geographically broad and ecologically diverse as Canada, I guess it's easy to believe that some species just live other places. With these headlines from February, I was excited. Not only did river otters live in Alberta, but they were expanding their range. I had to ask myself though, what's the difference between this river otter and other otters? There are 13 species of otters around the world, but only one lives in Alberta, Lantra canadensis. River otters are one of the largest members of the weasel family, known as mustelids. They are active year-round in Alberta and grow between 35 and 51 inches, or between about 2 feet and 4 feet. River otters can weigh between 11 and 30 pounds and live about 10 years in the wild. They are almost exclusively found near permanent water bodies, like rivers, lakes, and ponds, usually near forested areas. However, otters build dens and eat on land, so you might find them beyond the shoreline. River otters require high quality water and prefer fish, but are opportunistic omnivores. Anglers need not worry about competition from the river otter, as they prefer non-game varieties of fish. Availability of winter habitat 
seems to determine how many otters will live in an area. And in terms of numbers in Alberta, it seems like the river otter is doing all right. An Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute report based on data from 2013 considers the river otter population in the province secure. Otters were found at 35 of the 712 sites sampled, mostly in the northeastern boreal region of Treaty 8, with a few sightings in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains on Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 lands. In terms of importance to Indigenous peoples, in Alberta, otter features in the Cree creation story, and river otters are harvested in a controlled manner as a fur bearer. While river otters faced overhunting threats during the fur trade, the greatest threat to the species right now includes habitat loss and degradation and potential bioaccumulation of environmental toxins consumed through their aquatic food chain. Sightings in Calgary mean the river otter is expanding south into Treaty 7 lands and suggests, according to wildlife expert Chris Fisher, that, quote, the health of the Bow River and the fish population in this river and the surrounding environment is in really good shape, end quote. And this is exciting news for anyone like me who admired these animals from afar, only to recently discover otters actually live in Alberta, learned everything I can about them, and now has a newfound interest in this species' health and conservation. Throughout this episode, we've talked about the importance of conserving nature, whether it be a species or a special natural place. What we hope you noticed throughout this episode is that conservation is not about putting up fences to keep a place wild and pristine. Good conservation needs people. People to value and use natural spaces. By having a connection to nature, whether it comes from a story your grandfather shared, remembering how good it felt to introduce someone to the space, or something that caught your eye on social media, when we connect to nature, we create a type of place attachment. And this deep connection is a powerful tool to help promote conservation. Just like we explored in our two-part history of the River Valley, natural places and endemic species have layers of history and relationship to people. To really appreciate a place, we strongly encourage you to take some time and learn the history of it. Learn about indigenous and colonial history learn about threats to conservation and what good stewardship is happening. Almost everything you want to know is on the internet. You can do the first piece of work and act out part of your treaty responsibilities by learning what is already out there to know about your favorite species and natural places. While we all stay closer to home through the rest of the summer season, we here at Terra Informa hope you discover more about your favorite natural places, and find new ones to care about, connect with, and conserve. That's all the time we have for this week. 
I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. A big shout out this week to Kurt Blandy and Andy Silva for sharing their stories about conservation and special natural places. Thanks to Hannah Cunningham for reading and summarizing the Hours to Save report. And special thanks to our guest host, Daniel Petrushevsky. This episode was produced by yours truly, Elizabeth Dowdell. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Tara Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.